as we're gathering ourselves up here, um, I thought I'd just start with a couple of um, announcements. So my name is Rita McGrath. I'm a professor at Columbia Business School, among other things. And I'm absolutely delighted to be joined today by Peter Georgescu, uh, the author of a uh, recent book, Capitalists Arise, which we're going to be talking about, as well as perhaps some of his uh, earlier work. Um, a few housekeeping notes, this session is being recorded, so don't say anything or put anything in the chat that you uh, don't want to sort of recorded for posterity. Uh, and we will replay the session for those that couldn't make it live uh, on my um, uh, YouTube channel. I will make an effort to monitor the chat. So if you have questions, that's the right place to put it. Uh, we generally don't do, you know, hand raising and that sort of thing in an open forum like this. Uh, but if you do have questions in the chat, put them in and we will try to get to them. If we don't get to them live, we follow up afterwards with uh, some comments. Um, so without further ado, it's such an honor to meet you, even though virtually, um, uh, but uh, I've been a follower of your work for many years and uh, just so pleased that you agreed to uh, jo join with us. Um, so for those that don't know Peter Georgescu, he has a fascinating backstory, uh, which went from, and I'll let you tell him himself, but he's a former chair of Young and Rubicam, uh, and has recently really been working on issues of economic inequality, um, economic justice, and that's really what I was hoping we would talk to. So before getting into what you're doing right now, perhaps tell us how you got here. What what was your journey? Uh, and I know it's it's a very rich story, so please take the time to spell it out, because I think it's such an important motivator for why this topic is so critical. Right. Well, thank you. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I'll return the compliment. I have been reading about you and reading your work for a long, long time, and uh, your uh, insightful contributions to what's going on in America today are very important. And so I'm deeply appreciative for having the opportunity to have this conversation with you. <laughs> so, uh, as you asked, I'll start uh, way back early on and move rather quickly to where we are. But uh, I was born, I'm an off-the-boat American, as I call myself. I don't know if that means I'm first generation, zero gender, whatever the heck it is. I was born 6,000 miles away from here in Bucharest, Romania, just as the Second World War started. And uh, uh, my father, uh, two Romanian parents, one educated in England, my father, one educated in France through uh, the latter part of their education and, and met, came back to Romania, met, and here I am with an older brother I had. And uh, my father had an interesting job. He was general manager of Standard Oil, New Jersey, meaning Exxon's. Um, he was general manager of the oil fields, Croatian oil fields, which at the time were the Saudi Arabia of Europe. In fact, the German war machine ran almost exclusively on the Croatian oil fields. What that meant for my father was to be put in prison by the Germans uh, because of his relationship with the Allies. And uh, long story about that, we won't go into it, but he was involved with the OSS. My mother was a courier going back and forth. Anyway, he, uh, they survived the war. My brother and I spent the war in, uh, with our grandparents in Transylvania. And then after the war, we got together in late 1945. About a year and a half later, 
we were a family in New York, finally reunited, normal organic family, two kids, two boys, and my parents. Then in early 1947, my dad went to New York for what was to be a general manager's meeting in New York City. And just at that time, the Russians pulled off that coup d'etat and the Iron Curtain comes down in Eastern Europe now is in the hands of, of communist, the Soviet Union. And so uh, he was lucky to have friends from the OSS days where he worked with them. Uh, lucky because they told him that the uh, CIA was the burgeoning CIA had information that my father's name as an influential person in Romania was on a list to be arrested and killed in Romania. So they convinced him that he and my mother should not return to Romania. There was nothing they can do to help us and they would uh, lose their lives. So fortunately for all of us, they stayed in New York and we went and stayed with our grandparents. And they were right. The intelligence was correct because during the early days, about 300,000 Romanian influentials in business, in politics, in religion, anybody who was thought to be a threat to the communist regime was rounded up and killed in different ways. They learned from the Germans, no gas chambers, but they found other ways. For example, they put most of the people to work digging canals going from nowhere to nowhere. And within less than two years, they were underfed, underclosed. Within two years, they're all gone, except for really special people like my grandfather. He was a former uh, governor of Transylvania. They were arrested, put in prison. And eventually, as we learned much later on, after we left Romania, that they had killed him in prison. But shortly after they arrested my grandfather, they also took my brother, five years old, and my grandmother, myself, and took us to the Russian border away from Transylvania. Uh, the two boys, we went to work at six o'clock in the morning, came back about six o'clock at night, hard labor, meaning I cleaned sewers for the first uh, couple of years. Um, and then I dug holes for electric poles. I worked on high tension wires. And that was my life. Six days a week, on Sundays you slept. Of course, there was no schooling. We had no books. We had nothing except our grandmother who was under house arrest. She couldn't leave the house. So for the first few couple of years, we had a guard outside the house that, that uh, would take us to work and back. After a while, there was kind of a waste of his time. He slept outside our door. We had one room, uh, some hay, which was our bed. And, and so life was very primitive, an outhouse in the back. So that was our lives. And uh, the only other external experiences we had were every, every other month or so, we were at what I would call brainwashing sessions, where they would tell us how terrible our parents are, how extraordinarily bad it was for the country, for the people of Romania. And as a consequence, we had to do what we were doing, working in, in incarcerated, if you will. And the irony of that never seemed to bother them in terms of logic. Why would the kids or these people who live in the States have to suffer for that? But never mind. But the good news was they kept us alive. Meanwhile, in New York, they came to my father about six years later, and they said, my father now was a 
employed by Standard Oil, by Exxon, and he was rising in the, in the uh, channels of, uh, of the company. And uh, the uh, Romanian diplomat that represented the Soviet Union and, my, and Romanians said, uh, if you want to see your children alive again, Mr. Georgescu, you have to spy for us. So uh, he went home, obviously the uh, sleepless night, went to the FBI the following morning, told them the story and said, what do I do? They said, become a double agent. They said, well, we can't, I don't want to do that because I've seen that play before, it never ends well. Sooner or later, I can't do something or I wouldn't want to do something and they'll kill the kids anyway, what else? Well, they said, after a few weeks of thought, uh, go to the press. And the idea was that at the time of the height of the Cold War, the Russians wanted uh, the world to believe that they are much more civilized than America. So that they would for sure tell the Romanians, you can't kill the kids because they know we have them. So by the way, they said, if the story doesn't catch on, we'll you know, fan the flames. Well, that wasn't necessary. Every little town in America in 1953 was full of the blackmail of the Georgescu family and so forth. Now, one of the persons who read the story was a woman. She was a force, a force of nature. She was a congresswoman. She was a congressman, she wanted to call herself. And she was the chair of the Foreign Relations Committee in Congress. The chair in 1953, I think she was the only woman woman in Congress, in the House, and she was chairman of this committee, Foreign Relations Committee, not an unimportant committee at that time in the Cold War. So you can imagine the force that this woman had. Anyway, she called my father and said, Mr. Georgescu, she was Congresswoman from Ohio. She called my father in New York and said, we'll get the boys out of Romania, don't you worry about it. So uh, she went to work, tried, to talk to the Russians, tried to talk to the Romanians through the UN, nothing doing. So she ended up in Eisenhower's office. And by the way, she helped Eisenhower get elected. That's an interesting story for this woman another time. But I think she probably said, Mr. President, or I get the boys out of Romania. And so we got traded for a bunch of Russian spies who America held in the United States. And so on August 13th, 1954, my brother and I arrived in Romania. I was, I was 15 years old. I didn't speak a word of English and I hadn't gone to school in uh, something like four, four or five years. And the principal of Exeter, a wonderful school up in uh, New England, called my father and he said, hey, I'll keep a place for your son. And dad started to protest, said, I want to explain, sir, he doesn't speak a word of English. This was April right? He said, ah, I know. I read his story in the papers. And we were every television program, whatever. It was a circus. There was a famous he, picture too, wasn't there? Yes. The yes, family being yes. reunited. Exactly. We had a couple hundred people at the airport to take our picture. It was quite something. Anyway, so he said, you, you, you help your son learn English. He learned other things there. So that'll be fun help him learn English, come have uh, dinner with me in August in, uh, in, uh, at Exeter, and then we'll go from there. We did go, 
He liked me. Thank God. I don't know why. I remember him saying, if you can, if you can pass your courses on your own by the end of the first year, you get to stay. Otherwise, I'll find a right school for you. Um, I said, I didn't know what he was talking about. I was smart enough to say, yes, sir. Out the door we go with my dad. Pass me in the back. I'll see you in 10 days. He says, by the way, what class would you like to be in? I didn't know what to say. I said, ah, I'd like to be in with boys my own age. So he looks at me. Then a smile comes on his face, throws up his hands and said, what difference does it make? You're going to be a sophomore, a lower middle, a sophomore at Exeter. So that's how I got in. Uh, I got a good education. I ended up at Princeton in Stanford Business School. Then I joined the Anaerobic Camp and uh, I did reasonably well. So, but the hero of this story is not me. The hero of this story is America. Because why did this woman, a congresswoman from Ohio, call my dad in New York? Made no sense to say, I'll help you and get the boys out. And then why did the principal of Exeter, reading this story, says, oh, this immigrant kid, I want to do something. He did it because he could. And that was the zeitgeist. It was a time... If you were, at least if you were white, and I was and an immigrant, that was okay. And the people were kind and thoughtful. And those were my, you know, uh, wonderful guardian angels. And I had many of those in my life, like we all do. We all succeed in life because we have many people who help us along the journey. Mm -hmm. And this is an important principle because... At this stage in life, I can look in the mirror and say with absolute, total honesty and conviction, I'm the best Peter Georgescu I can imagine being. And that could only have happened in America. Mm. And, and so I want for my, we now have three granddaughters, and actually we have four granddaughters, and I want for them, um, uh, we have a step-granddaughter, and she is as much a granddaughter to us. And... And I want for them, for these wonderful young women, but not just them, every young person in America, regardless of color, regardless of income, I want them to have the opportunities I had. Mm -hmm. Because all of us have this innate possibility. And we know economically that possibility doesn't exist today. Mm -hmm. And that's what we have to change in America. And that's how the book was written. And mm -hmm. that's my passion today, mm -hmm. to try to do my best to leave behind that wonderful America dream, which means being the very best you can be. Mm -hmm. so, so that's my story. I, I, it's, it's inspiring. It really is. And you're right. It's as much about America as it is about any. Yes, no question. And that timing is so interesting to me because right after the end of World War II, um, there was a number of, of different organizations, but notably the Council for Economic Development, which was a group of business people. Right. And what they were looking at, just to take, take it from the other side, uh, what they were looking at was tens of millions of soldiers. And these are people who've been trained to fight and kill uh, coming home and no jobs for right. them. And uh, the, what they saw was a return to the Great Depression and possible social collapse. And they said, they, they agreed as business people that we will uh, do a number of things to put creating good jobs at the center 
of our business strategy. So we'll welcome labor unions, we'll you know, pay enough so that people can become consumers. They essentially architected the creation of the middle class that you came into. Um, and, and, then, and then since then, right, that, that consensus around good jobs and, and, a, and a thriving middle class seems to have eroded to the point where you've said uh, capitalism is committing slow suicide. So perhaps draw out from your perspective how that came to be. How did we get to right. it now? Yeah, it was, it, was, it was wonderful for me to have come in at a time because, the, as you said so well, uh, and I, I have a chart in the book, which is kind of my favorite chart in many ways, to define what we're talking about. And that is, there's a chart that shows the growth from 1945 through today. It demonstrated the growth in productivity and the growth in wages. And from 1945 to the middle 1980s, it's, uh, <laughs> the chart, one is in red, one is in blue. The red is productivity, the blue is labor. They, it's actually, you can't tell the color because they're so on top of each other yeah. for about 40 years. As, yeah. as productivity goes up, wages went up. For all the reasons you mentioned, there was a compact. The GI Bill created this education yes. for all Americans, uh, men and women, and uh, who fought in the war. And now, they, yes, there you go. There's the chart. <laughs> That's great, Vita. Thank you so much. And, and, and so you see then, after the middle 80s, the productivity goes up. Profitability goes up, innovation goes up, and wages stay flat for 40 years at or near, just under inflation over the 40 years. And, and that's the travesty and the tragedy. So what happens, we have now created a dual class society, call it 25, 75, 70, 30 at the most, uh, but uh, the 25 or so percent of us are doing great Life is as good as it gets that ever had. It's like the boom in history for a large segment of a population. And, and yet the other side has been in terrible disarray up to 60% of homes uh, until uh, up to a few um, weeks ago when the last measurement happened, had to borrow money to put food on the table. And COVID now, exposes all of this. I spend like five or so years really through the book and lectures and so forth, talk to capitalists, to government people, to say, we have a problem here. Please pay attention. We got to fix this. And now COVID just laid it bare. And, and it did, a, I mean, one of the good byproducts, if you can say that, is just that understanding that what's going on in America today is just simply not sustainable. Mm -hmm. And now the very existence, the very existence of America's democracy rests with business doing the right thing. And so our mission, first mission is we've got to protect capitalism mm -hmm. because the reality is that capitalism was proven to be the most extraordinary producer of prosperity and growth that humankind ever invented. It, it created as the largest market, as you said. This America's middle class, up through the mid-80s, was the largest economic market in the world. And all you have to do, the principles of capitalism, 
build up India and China and other countries in Europe and so forth. The issue is not capitalism. Capitalism is this machine, this factory that that's all it knows what to do. Let it free enterprise capitalism go and it will produce growth. And by the way, free enterprise capitalism didn't fail in the last 40 years. It didn't. It did exactly what it was asked to do. What was it asked to do? From 19, mid-1980s, it was asked to maximize short-term shareholder value. So the question is the governance of business. The governance of business. In other words, the rules of the road for how business is conducted and who are the beneficiaries of that business and the business results and the prosperity therein. And that's how we got to have this 30-70 split in America. Maximize short-term shareholder value. Mm -hmm. And that became very destructive, very destructive and broad-based because it also affected education. Education mm -hmm. is paid by real estate taxes. The poor people didn't have, they were by zip codes. This is not north, south, east, west. It's by zip code next door. And those, those uh, education facilities are horrible in those zip codes. That's why on average, America ranks on the bottom of the developed world in terms of young people's 15, 16 year old competence and uh, local language skills and uh, mathematics towards the bottom half of the developed world. How can that be? But it is because we've achieved segregation of education, quality of education now by, not only by race, but by income. Mm -hmm. And the same thing happens in healthcare. We have some of the lowest mortality rates in the world. And we spend more money uh, on uh, healthcare than anybody else. Mm -hmm. And so yet we have that disparity. And if you take the longevity of life between the top and the bottom, 1%, the, the difference in uh, life span is about 15 years. It's not us in the Maasai tribesmen in Africa, it's America. So anyway, that's what COVID now is proven to be and the vulnerable ones are dying and the you know, wealthier amongst us are sequestered away in nice places, healthy places, can protect ourselves and so forth and so on. And the others are exposed to this dreaded, dreaded virus. So, so we have a problem. So we have to change the governance. That's the key issue. If we don't change the governance, nothing good can happen. Mm -hmm. And right now, we are looking at a situation where we take our hat off and celebrate the business roundtable. Mm -hmm. Because in August of last year, as you well know, the business roundtable came up with a set of principles with a fundamental issue saying society and business must now business must look at society as a very important stakeholder constituent of business. And so that was a monumentally important step for business. And it opened up the possibility of dialogue, possibility of options, where do we go from here? And uh, what's happening right now in my work right now is to make sure that stakeholder capitalism which is fundamentally in line with what the business roundtable principles were, that stakeholder capitalism becomes the new governance for business.
Mm-hmm. Not all of the business roundtable members signed it. No, that's true. They did not all of them sign it, but they did magnificently well because mm-hmm. there are about 182 members, I believe, of the business roundtable, and 170 did sign it. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a magnificent accomplishment in a tribute to Jamie Dimon, the chairman, and Alex Gorski, who is the mm-hmm. head of the governance committee, uh, chairman of, uh, of Johnson & Johnson, who is the head of the governance committee for the business roundtable. I can imagine the conversations because I have been trying to sell that idea to CEOs directly. And believe me, it was not an easy thing to do. So So I have enormous admiration for that. How does a typical conversation with a CEO go? Because you talk a lot about the the founders of Home Depot that you tried to partner with, trying to, you know, approach them where they live, trying to get into their brains. What, What do they tell you? Well, you know... There are some, you mentioned the head of Home Depot. This is Ken, Ken Langone. Ken Langone. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, a, he's another force of nature. And Ken, Ken is a capitalism, a capitalist who was born on the wrong side of the tracks. He pretty much went to high school. His parents didn't have, uh, didn't, I'm not sure. I don't think they finished high school. And so uh, he, uh, he, he was a self-made man. Mm-hmm. and um, supported by a wonderful woman. They're married young, and uh, he's, he's a force. He's a capitalist, but he believes in fairness and justness. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so, as a good capitalist, he really works very hard to, to make that happen in, in the long term, in the long journey of Home Depot. They, they were able to to, to get kids who were picking up uh, carts in the, in the parking lots who are now millionaires because they worked at Home Depot and got themselves all the way up. The, the true American way, but they had the opportunity to do that. And that becomes the key to everything that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. So when I'm talking to CEOs, first of all, uh, they just live on and we're talking averages because there are exceptions and we can talk some more about some of the other folks. And I, I think that's important, but on, on balance, they have no idea what was going on in the country. No idea. Because you see, we are brought up to live in a, in a bubble. Mm-hmm. We live in a bubble. And this is why in another way, from a social point of view and in this whole black lives matter is another sort of exemplar of that it's 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 like we live we 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 look through the world exactly like we have our lives and our lives are good and we want to perpetuate our lives and that's it and we are not really concerned about what else is going on in the country i had one ceo when i said that 60 percent of american homes um need to borrow money, put food on the table. He said, if you're so confident, do you dare give me that chart and send me uh, and send it so I can send it to my very close friend uh, and uh, who's one of the chief conservative economists because I don't believe that's the America that I know. Mm-hmm. And indeed, I said, be my guest. Uh, and, and, um, that's what happened and and it was just yeah there you go that's the chart that shows how desperate 
mm -hmm. American homes are. Mm -hmm. And but he he it just he could not accept the problem. And if you don't accept the problem, you're not going to worry about the solution. Exactly. Exactly. So I had, that's a lesson we all learn. I'm teaching a course um, at the moment uh, for Columbia on women in leadership. And one of the participants is this young, youngish um, product of Silicon Valley, you know, gilded life, onward and upward. I think she went to Stanford and whatnot. And uh, I said, you know, it was a kind of conversation about something else. But I said, you know, 36 million jobs have been created in America over the last 10 years since the Great Recession. Um, but, but, but there are 36 million bad jobs. They pay less than $15 an hour. They don't exactly. pay with health benefits. And she looked at me in complete astonishment. And she said, wait a minute. I thought all the new jobs were like high tech and... and <laughs> The war for talent and, you know, companies competing with each other to hire these people in foosball games and free food, you know, <laughs> and all that stuff. Uh, she was astonished. I mean, there's just a stunning lack of awareness. That's, that's, that's it. You're right. Uh, right now, about 82 million American jobs are gig in the gig economy. And as you say, the 20 or so per, uh, percent lower wages, no benefits, no pension, no security, none. And, and it's extraordinary. And so these CEOs know that their kids go to school uh, at age three, and then they go to kindergarten, and then they go to a really good high school, and they have tutors if they need, if they need help, and they go to wonderful places in America or wonderful places in Europe and have exposure to life and so forth and so on. So that's America, right? Mm -hmm. No. There are no early education, zero for age of, uh, the age of three for most kids in America, the vast majority of America, 70% plus. They don't do that. They go to, to high school and in, in, in first grade in a dilapidated building with no arts programs because they can't afford them to an underpaid teacher to 35 kids in a classroom. That most kids, many kids don't finish even high school. Very few go to college and then they have to drop out because they are academically underprepared and socially they can cope with the, with the pressures that are put on by the sons and daughters of the 30% of American higher education. So there's no equal opportunity for those kids. They can't get there from here. And that's the reality of what the problems are for America. So again, Capitalists can fix this, but we need inclusive growth. We need inclusive growth. Otherwise, our democracy will collapse. We're talking at some point in time about what's, going to, what's the alternatives. The alternatives will become a Brazil with, with armored cars and guarded uh, households with machine guns on the turrets. Because that's what happens in Brazil. And they have that kind of a society. Now, that's not America. Or, or what you say, someday, you know, a really radical group of people say, let's kill business, let's kill socialism. Let's tell business exactly how it should be done. And then the government's going to own the means of production and distribution. And we know what that is like. I live through that. That's real social. That's what socialism really means. Communism forms socialism. When the government controls everything and they didn't know how to do that. Mm -hmm.
And, and, and yet, um, our version of capitalism can produce inclusive growth. So let's, let's talk a little bit about, you know, what are some of the steps? Like what, what, mm -hmm. what, you know, I, so often I get into these conversations and what people say to me is, you know, I hear you, I totally believe it, but I'm just one cog in a great big wheel. You know, how do we start to generate um, some change? And, and, you know, we're not alone in this. I mean, there's a group called Patriotic Millionaires. I know you've talked about just capital. Uh, my friend Zainab Tan has the, the Institute for Good Jobs. Um, so, you know, there's, there's, there, there are, there are collectives, but I don't know what's going to happen to actually tip us over into really taking okay. steps. And one of the good things maybe that comes out of COVID is that we realize we don't have a choice. Yeah. Well, we don't have a choice. Uh, well, we do have a choice. <laughs> Not a good choice. <laughs> right. Not a good choice. You know, but, but by any other name, by any other name, you know, stakeholder capitalism is the answer. You can call it conscious capitalism, you can call it inclusive capitalism. Uh, all of these uh, movements, which are patriotic millionaires, people want to do good. It it's all boils down to an issue that is, we have to have the right stakeholders at the table when decisions are being made. That's the key. That's the very key. And that's the difference because stakeholder, the shareholder primacy, which was started in the mid 80s, was very clear. Every CEO knows exactly what to do. You maximize the next quarter's profits have to be higher than the previous quarter. Period, over and out. No excuses. And by the way, we, the financial community, will kill you if you miss your forecast by one penny. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to your compensation, as long as you deliver that quarter by quarter profit, you can make dozens of millions of dollars. We don't care. Mm -hmm. Just make sure that you deliver. And if you can't deliver, you're gone. So the average tenure of the CEO is about four years. It's come down a lot. And, and then do you have the, what I call the terrorist hedge fund activists? Not a lot of them, but powerful ones, who says, you either deliver that, or I'm going to come in and take over. You'll get fired. We'll squeeze, we'll squeeze labor. We'll fire as many people as can get away with. And then we're going to flip it. And that's bad for business, bad for, I mean, how, how are we going to compete with China under that, those scenarios? We don't invest not only people, we don't invest in R&D, we don't invest in basic research as much as we should. Forget society, and we pay a lot of lip service to ESG. There's no S in, in ESG <laughs> right now. We, and we, we modestly begin to think about the E part, the uh, environment, because Otherwise, we'll have total extinction. So there's a lot of talk, and there's a lot of good momentum for, stake, for uh, stakeholder capitalism, but I call it happy talk, mm. which says, okay, that's a good idea. That's a good idea. But when you get up tomorrow morning, say, I'm going to do it, what are you going to do? And this is what uh, is happening today. And I want to, to, to single out, uh, as you, you mentioned, just capital. Because Just Capital is an extraordinary organization, and, and I serve to, to, to disclose it. I serve as a director of it. And that organization is really committed to help take the BRT principles and create, among other things, we measure justness in corporations, we measure what 
progress is being made by corporations and reported to the public and to media. But also importantly, we're trying to create a, if you will, a mo operating model for stakeholder capitalism. Oh, say more about model. that. That sounds important. Okay. Well, that's the key. That's, mm -hmm. at the end of the day, is the key. Otherwise, we talk about it. Mm -hmm. Let me give you an example specifically. We know we have to pay people more. So what do you do as a CEO? Do, uh, do I just give them a raise? What? 10%, 20%, 30 What am I going to do? How am I going to do this? So, for example, a point of view is this. And let me backtrack for one second. The secret sauce for the 21st century any company in America that will succeed, or for that matter in the world, if they do two things. You either improve productivity to create more value, or you innovate to produce more value. That's it. And you've got to do it continuously, as you have written about that. Yes, <laughs> the competitive advantage that used to be is gone. The competitive advantage that lasts you for a lifetime, that's gone. So. Productivity increases and, and innovation towards the consumer or towards the company, towards technology, that has to go on, on and on and on forever. Mm -hmm. So those are the two things that has to happen. So who does that? The CEO? The CEO creates productivity increases in innovation? No, it's the employees, the workers. And so what they have to do we corporations have to do is to understand that the new value creators are your workforce. Mm -hmm. Well, and increasingly that's the only entry barrier, right? That's I mean, exactly you have, right. You have a deep committed workforce that's been with you for a long time. That's very hard to copy. If you're just buying and selling people off the shelf. Well, but that's what we're, that's the, that's the problem with exactly. uh, shared uh, primacy because workers became a transaction. It's a transaction. I'm going to squeeze you the best we can, and I don't really care about you. So that's changed. So now back to how do we pay people? Mm -hmm. So we pay people through the increase in, of the incremental value increase that they can produce. But now, which by the way, they've done forever, but now they share in it. So that's how people get paid a lot of extra money. They help, they help create more value and they share fairly in that new value creation. So that's a principle of stakeholder capitalism. Pay people out of the incremental value of what they produce. But in order to do that, you have to motivate people. Why should somebody, as many executives today do, get up in the middle of the night worrying about tomorrow morning, I've got to do something. I've got to do something to improve and produce greater value. Why? Because I get paid for that if I'm a C-suite person, right? That's how my bonus comes in. And I drive the stock market and so forth. Now, the, all the workers, the employees, have to do the same thing. So we have to reimagine the relationship between our workforce, as you said, and the employees. And take every successful, any successful companies in America today, and there are many of them, you can start with the top companies, the technology companies. And I'm being, I've thrown in my face, people say, oh, the technology companies are not a good example because they're technology companies. <laughs> uh-huh. Technology creates technology, right? No. People create technology. 
And the different thing that their technology adds value. Whereas many people use technology to fire people. That's why we use technology mostly in business today and no more. Well, we can't afford to do that to a large degree. And so I'm not, so however productivity is, it has to get better. And we have to get people to want to do that. And we have to also use technology to help add value for what people do today and make life better for consumers and have, make happier consumers. That means loyal consumers. That means I can charge them a couple of pennies more because I can do it better than somebody else. And that's the future. And that's, those are the kind of principles that stakeholder capitalists must put forth. Help create incremental value, then people share in that, call it profit sharing, to use stock, whatever works for that company. So the principle are principles, they're not numbers like put X percent in this and Y percent in that. Every company has to figure out their own thing. And that's what the role of the boards of directors are, to make sure that this optimizes the interests of all the stakeholders. I want to give you from good, a good example and a bad example. Okay. The good example. There, there is uh, uh, Jim Senegal. In 19, mm-hmm. uh, 1983, he started Costco. And what did he do? He went and he hired in those days, you can't do it anymore because Walmart is a different company today. He got Walmart guys and they double and triple the salaries. And they said, I want you. And that's what Jim said. He says, I want you guys to love my customers and love my suppliers. I want my suppliers to be my best friends and stay with me. And I want my customers to love me. Because mm-hmm. that's if we do that, we're going to win. And that's in the toughest industry you can have. Discount retailing. Hello? And since 1983, and I stopped looking at it, I should do it again. But they've uh, compounded at 16 plus percent since then. Yeah. Remarkable story. These are not a technology company. Yeah. And Home Depot does the same thing. Ken Langone has a chart in his office. And what he worries about, we got to take care of the salesman on the floor. He said, that's the value creator. He talks, about, want those guys. He talks about his longevity metrics, doesn't he? That's it. Yeah, that's yeah. his longevity metric. Because he said, I need experience. I need those people to know when somebody comes in and said, oh, I don't know, I've got to do this, I got to, oh, don't worry, man, I'm going to tell you, here's your tool, here's how it works, here's the paint, here's the this, here's the brush, here's the something else. And that's who creates the value, you see, whatever it is. And, and when we can get people to think that way en masse, America can thrive again. And we can create great jobs and new businesses. Mm-hmm. There's no reason why we can, can't create the manufacturing companies of tomorrow. Yes, we can use technology. No, there won't be as many people. But guess who's going to build the new facility? Who are the people who are going to create the, the warehouses and the ships and the design the this? So we can create lots more businesses and jobs. Never mind that we have to create the infrastructure for new businesses in America. So the potential for us is extraordinary. Now, let me give you a problem thing, Mm -hmm. which is a sad, tragic story. And that was 
not East because it's under new management, enlightened management, and that was Boeing. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't recall the numbers correctly, but roughly something like $16 million were invested in R&D and 46 or $47 million in buying back stocks. Yep. Yep. Right? Mm-hmm. So roughly that was the proportion of, and that's what shareholder primacy did. Maximize short-term shareholder value. The customers not at the table, they paid lip service. So once I wrote, uh, I wrote an article about, a, a, about uh, Boeing and, uh, and worried about safety and worried being concerned about safety. And there was a mechanic who wrote me an email and signed his name. Of course, I didn't use it. And, and said, I'm so happy that somebody's going to worry about it because we are not worrying about this internally. And, and you see, that's the kind of culture that obviously is, has been changed. They have a new, up from everything I hear, an outstanding CEO. And it, it will we'll fix Boeing, will fix lots of other places. But then again, the, on the positive side, why is Delta Airlines prior to COVID and even now? Why was it the best airline for all of us who go from pillar to post? How come was the best airline to fly? And I asked that question. I was on a flight from Phoenix to New York one day, and I, this, this not particularly young, but very attractive, um, middle-aged or middle-whatever um, uh, flight attendant who was smiling to the people, taking orders, he was careful about this. And I went to the back of the plane, I said, Excuse me, if you don't mind, I observed what you were doing, and I'm really curious, why are, you, why are you so pleasant, so happy, and working so hard, trying so hard to please your customers? I said, in today's world, it's somewhat unusual. And she said, I love my company. This you is know Delta. What? This is Delta. He says, for the last six years, we had profit sharing, and I love it. And you know something? For years... For years, the management cared. The CEOs used to come and talk to us, flight attendants, whenever they flew. And they asked us how we're doing and so forth. And I remember writing to them and they would write back. They cared about what we thought. So I've been at this for 35 years, she said. And I wrote, I wrote a, uh, I write on uh, Forbes.com and, and I tell the story and, and she was, she was just, I just love my job. She was now in her mid-50s. And I, I, he said, I have a, a good pension and my husband has a pension, but I love my job and I love my company. So I keep doing it because mm-hmm. I love people. My company supports me in doing that. Mm-hmm. And this is, you see, the entrepreneurial spirit of America needs to come back. Mm-hmm. We keep worrying about China and we're throwing tariffs at them and we try to get tough with China, tough with that, and, and try to punish them for sins. I'm sure they, and we know they've done a lot of bad stuff to us and they stole some stuff, but we also gave China everything away. We gave it voluntarily a lot. We wanted to go to China and they said, fine, come here and tell us how you do things. And yes, they took it and they're working it hard through capitalist principles. Mm-hmm. Now the government is different. Mm-hmm. 
but the people are happy. They're doing it, and they have the freedom to practice free enterprise capitalism. But we're not, they're investing more in the business. In AI, the last pre-COVID, of course, they were going to spend $400 billion on AI in the next five years. Mm-hmm. Our government, Zippo, mm-hmm. we're planning to do it. Now, of course, Google and Microsoft and the others would spend money in that, but it's relatively modest. And probably they're all trying to do exactly the same thing so they can compete with each other. And they are not. And that's why they have things like 5Gs. And now we're begging our allies not to use the Chinese 5Gs. So we have to wake up. We, the competition in the future, our, our national security is based on stakeholder capitalism. Because a strong democracy and strong business is what it is. It ain't going to be only tanks and airplanes and nuclear weapons, which we can't use if we want our children to be alive, never mind us. So, so, so now this time is really a critical turning point for America. We don't have decades here to fix this. So We've got to fix it now. From a policy point of view, I mean, some of the things I've called out in, in my work have been indeed the, the 1982 SEC rule that basically made buybacks right. stuff you know, just right. anybody can do it, right? Um, we had uh, changes in, in certainly a, uh, the rise of the gig worker, the ability to classify people as non-employees, even though, you know, they are employees. Right. If you think about a company like Google, which for its people does what you suggest, right? And yet it's got this army of contractors, you know, who are on the campus working for Google, but they're not employees and they don't get the you know, the perks. Um, so what from a policy point of view, where, where do we start? Well, first of all, I'll, I'll, I'll mention to you for sure for policy, but I'm saying the Googles and the Amazon, et cetera, that use the contract workers and exploit them, that has to change. And it, by the way, it has changed. Mm-hmm. Amazon, once they figure out, which by the way to Amazon is not even a rounding error on their PNL, no. but it's the culture, but it's the culture. That's what we say. That's what's got to happen. Businesses are run by culture, not just rules and regs. It's a culture in the company because everybody knows you. Every penny goes to the shareholder. That's what has to be. And now we have to think every penny has to go to the workers, to R&D, to the environment, to society. Mm-hmm. All, and to the shareholders too. They are critical stakeholders but all the other state people at the table. And not only that, our profits have to be higher. This is not socialism. This is the antithesis to be able to afford to, to take care of all these other stakeholders. Our profits has to be higher. The productivity has to be higher. Innovation has to be higher. We have to compete with China. We have to compete with Europe and win. Because otherwise we're not. Mm-hmm. Now, government can help. Government can help. But let's establish a simple fact. Mm-hmm. Government doesn't produce prosperity and growth. It can support it, can incentive it. That's not what they do. They spend money, they don't make money. Right. <laughs> so, so, so they can help business a lot. You mentioned buybacks. Right now, 91 cents out of every operating dollar goes to the shareholder to drive the market, which drives the compensation of the CEO, the C-suite, and us shareholders. But since 84, 
percent of the value of the stock market is in the hands of 10 percent of the people that's not america america on total doesn't benefit from the stock market right so that's why all of this has to change and share buybacks i hope can be dramatically reduced now there may be instances when for no for whatever reasons the stock maybe it's way down and the company feels comf confident that it will go up but they can only do that let's say once every three years on a limited basis or something like that on balance we've got to do away with the practice of stock buybacks being the driver of the company performance they've got to deliver greater value not stock buybacks and you can't give quite 36% on average of the operating profit goes for dividends, again, to the stakeholders. That's outrageous. That's what happened during the Great Depression, not our Great Recession, but the Great Depression mm -hmm. in the 30s. Mm -hmm. Not since then do we rape the company to that degree to put it all there. So we have to have a new balance, a new normal, so to speak, mm -hmm. and really drive organic growth and performance through that that's what we need we need incentives from government can do not only that they can only say to business look we'll give you some whatever the new uh, let's say business tax may be in the end uh, we can give you a couple of extra uh, percentage points if you invest so much in people if you invest so much in R&D or basic research, depending on the situation, we, we, we will play ball with you. And your money will be kept here in the United States. So you don't have to go, we'll cut out some of the loopholes. Goodbye, Luxembourg. <laughs> Good place to visit, but, and the like. Mm -hmm. So we have, to, we have to rethink what the purpose of business is. And government has to be a partner. And government can also be a partner in investments. We got to invest in training and development. We need to worry about trade schools. We need to be humble enough to learn from other experiences in trade education as, as the Germans uh, are doing and so forth. So there's a lot of learning to be done, but a lot we can do. And I end up being very optimistic about the future. We, this entrepreneurial drive that's in our gut, in our instinct, in our well-being, can serve us to, to have a life for those kids where my grandchildren can, in fact, be just like every other grandchild in this country and have opportunity to say what I can say, looking in their mirrors, then to say, I've lived a life. I'm the best Mary. I'm the best Charlie. I'm the best whatever. And that's... And I believe in that. That's inspiring. So we just got a couple of minutes left. Um, how do people get smarter about this? Where would you, what, what resources? Certainly Just Capital you've mentioned. Um, Patriotic Millionaires is another organization I know that's very committed to this. Are there other resources people should be using to get more educated about this, what they can do? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you, you should look at their website. I think uh, people like the Aspen Institute uh, mm. It's a, a great organization, and there's a wonderful set of dialogues that are going on right now at Aspen Institute, which promotes these kind of thinkers. Davos for Business Leaders is now really focusing attention on this very uh, 
very subject uh, that matters. And I, and I think depending, uh, depending what happens in November, I think administrations in the next four years have got to focus on this. This is, this is not a political issue. This is the future of America and America's democracy. And so we, we have to celebrate what has been, what we, the very beginnings, the green shoots that we see here and turn them into the real way life is going to happen. And, and so I choose to be optimistic about it. So we all can have a lot to do. We can get involved in our local communities and help each other. And we can resolve this issue of systemic racism in this country. That's critical as well, because we, this is also enlightened self-interest. Uh, I'm looking at a white person on this Zoom, and I say, we are going to be in 15 years the minority of this thing. So we have every incentive for us to say, welcome you all to America, whether you're black and brown or Asian or whatever you are. We are a stir-fry society, <laughs> and we can only win if we're united and together. So that's part of the future. So it's not only policy and business. It's we as people have got to improve and change. And look at this COVID situation as an opportunity. And we know COVID is teaching us again that only when we are united, playing together for the common good, for a long time, you know, we allow common good to leave town. And it has not served us well. Being alone, trying to be selfish and narcissistic and entitled is not a source for future success. But together, united, doing the right thing for the common good, and this wonderful balance between individual freedom and liberty and our collective need as a society and as a country. And if we get that balance right as people, I say, go to the polls and vote for the people that you like who will do that, who believe in that. Mm -hmm. And as a citizen, you have a responsibility to do that. It's not about ideology. It's about doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we will leave it there. I'm so grateful to have spent this hour with you and hear what's on your mind. And I hope um, our, our listeners um, take the message to heart. So, Peter Jodescu, thank you so much. Well, you're wonderful, Rita. God bless you and keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Bye, everyone.